0: One of the things that Sarah and I enjoy doing in the evening, the kids are in bed, is we sit down on the couch, and we just, we love sitcoms, right? Sitcoms, they're predictable, they're not too intense, um, there's, there's nothing like a, a good laugh to just shake some of the stress of the day. And at the beginning of this year, we were watching through a sitcom called The Good Place, starring Kristen Bell and, and Ted Danson, this, I would call it a philosophical com- comedy explored the concept of life after death. Kristen Bell's character is one of the main characters. She wakes up in the afterlife, finding herself in the good place, right? They're their reference to heaven, but instantly she knows there must have been some kind of mistake. Uh, she knows, she's like, I know I don't belong here because she realizes she was pretty terrible in life. And the first season, is it's so good, she like Poor theology, but it's a fascinating, kind of intriguing perspective of heaven. She works really hard to try to earn her spot in the good place. Uh, her soulmate, Chidi, is a professor of ethics, and so she she learns. And you see transformation in, here, in her, that she goes kind of from this somewhat deplorable kind of person, selfish person, to, to thinking of others. And it was a phenomenal show that approached this idea of the afterlife from a secular perspective. Right? It was intriguing to see how humanism, right, kind of like we make our own destiny and identity and all of those things, how humanism separated who was worthy of being in heaven or hell, what they call the good place or the bad place, respectively. Now, by the time that the show, the first season I think was phenomenal, the other seasons were okay, but by the time they got to the the fourth and final season, the premise that they had was trying to recalibrate who was allowed in the good place basically trying to provide a greater opportunity so that more people could experience heaven. And I really enjoyed so much of the show until the end, and here's how it ended. And I know it might be a spoiler for some of you, and I apologize for that, but the final season's, you know, the last episode's been out for a year and a half, so you've had plenty of time to watch it. So finally, the four main characters kind of open heaven's gates to the masses. And what those characters find when they get there is people who are described in, in, uh, on some blogs that I read as happiness zombies. This eternity that they had been living, thousands of years in the good place, has led to such boredom that they looked like people standing in a room strung out. Right, having, after having lived all the experiences they ever dreamed, they started to become jaded and heaven became a real drag. And so get this, the main characters, they come up with a solution. They create a doorway on the fringes of heaven. So that after you've kind of gotten your fill of heaven, you can pass through this doorway and disintegrate forever, right? Kind of become one with the universe, I suppose. Like a death after life after death. So I remember watching the final episode where all this comes out and feeling so unfulfilled I mean, like, what a bleak picture of heaven, right? A place where, sure, right, there's no pain, there's no struggle, you can do whatever you want, but even that becomes more dull and joyless than your time on earth. In my opinion, the writers of that show had such a narrow, shallow view of heaven that they couldn't help but come up with a dreary future. One of the famous, most famous skeptics, skeptical scholars of the 20th century is a man by the name of Bertrand Russell. And he stated that the idea of endless future horrified him because he said it would be too boring. Now I suppose if the purpose of heaven was just to do all of those things that we thought we missed out on in life, then it would be pretty drab. But this morning... As we're closing out our series on the Apostles' Creed, I want us to reclaim a robust understanding of the afterlife. And so we're going to examine the final clause in the Creed, which states that we believe in the life everlasting. And so as as has been our practice, let's um, put it all together. Recite it in its entirety. Yes, I have it on here. Let's recite the Creed together. The words will be on the screen. Friends... What do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, sorry. I had it. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. There it is in its entirety. We've made it. So as we examine this, this idea of believing and affirming the life everlasting, I have two primary themes that I want us to cover. I want to address the question that's put forth by Bertrand Russell, maybe more of a challenge than a question, uh, as well as the writers of The Good Place. Will heaven be boring? Spoiler alert, my answer is no. But from there, I also want us to take some time to explore what what will life be like? What will we do there in heaven? And try to close bringing it home with some application for us. Now, before I actually get into the midst of this, I do want to recommend a resource. When when we're reading or thinking about heaven, uh, this is very much an abstract exercise. It's hard to get concrete explanations of what heaven will be like. Even in... in um, the last couple of chapters of Scripture, which I'm I'm going to read some excerpts from in a moment, it it tells us a little bit about what heaven will be like without describing at all, really, what we'll be doing. One of my favorite books on heaven is called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Now, I want to say this is a work of fiction. This is not meant to be a systematic theology textbook. Uh, Take it with a grain of salt. But I think Lewis, C.S. Lewis, does a really good job of weaving together his creative imagination And his rootedness in scripture to create a plausible depiction of what heaven and hell will be like specifically heaven in its realness right to the point in which the you know the, the people who come from hell on this tour bus if you will right they are less real than heaven that the blades of grass don't even bend beneath their feet as well as showcasing the justification of hell that why these people who come from hell would actually rather go back to hell than stand in the presence of God and stay in the presence of heaven so if you've never read it I would highly encourage it so what what will heaven be like Let, let's uh, see what the Bible tells us about the life everlasting and j- just to be clear I'm, I'm gonna use the word heaven a lot in this but as we're gonna see in just a moment this idea of the life everlasting is is the time where heaven actually descends to earth to merge with earth, and then we'll live with God forever. So don't think of life everlasting as kind of some otherworldly place, but some type of fusion of heaven and earth. So if you want to open your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from uh, Revelation, excerpts from Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, there's a lot in them, so I'm just going to pick a few verses here or there to try to get as much descriptive nature of heaven as I can. So beginning, I'm going to read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. John, the Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, one quick note on this word, this Greek word new here, really means renewed, refurbished, as opposed to something brand spanking new like from scratch. And I think that's important for our understanding of this. This new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now we're going to see some boats here in a little bit um, on a passage later. I don't think that literally means that the sea, that there's no water, but the sea in a Hebrew understanding, Hebrew mythology was the place of uncertainty. was the place of evil. So John saying that the sea was no more is a metaphor that there is no evil in this place. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Notice that. It's not man goes up to dwell with God, but God comes down to dwell with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life Without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son or daughter let's jump down to chapter 21 verse 22 and we're gonna carry over to the next chapter verse 5 and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb and the city has no need of son or Or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and its lamp is the Lamb. by its light will the nation's walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it that's important we're gonna circle back to that and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there what's the purpose of walls boundaries is to keep people out and if those gates are open forever. That means that there's no one that you need to protect yourself to keep out. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Man, what a beautiful picture. Now just note, I think there are elements of this that we need to hold loosely. Whether or not this is meant to be taken 100% literalistically, like I mentioned about the sea, Does it mean that there's no water? I don't don't think that's what we're supposed to understand. It's a metaphor, symbolic. But it's clear that whether it's meant to be understood literally or symbolically, the point is God has done away with brokenness. He's done away with evil. I mean, this, this is a beautiful picture. Does this sound like a place that is boring? I know many of us who... I know there are many of us who long for heaven, a place that is free from pain and sickness, disease, strife, you name it. But there's those skeptics, as I alluded to earlier, who think that the idea of living forever sounds boring. Now, over, over the summer, my kids struggle with boredom. Without the structure of school, they often feel aimless. There's plenty of options of what they can do, but they, they just can't decide or they don't you know, really want to lock in a direction of what to do. And I, I know, like, I, sometimes I, I pick on my kids in that way, but I think that that's true for a lot of us. It's not unique to them. Many of us experience boredom, especially in this day and age if we aren't being constantly st- stimulated by our smartphones. Whether it be checking email, playing games, or scrolling our Facebook feed. Right? Remove that mindless exercise and we'd probably resort to the same level of boredom of my my kids now my kids have have learned not to tell me that they're bored because my response is always the same i don't know who originally said it but the quote is only boring people are bored basically if you're saying that you're bored you're boring right it's kind of your own fault if you will with the vast opportunities that we have in the 21st century to do so much with our lives, if we are bored, it is not for lack of options, but lack of creativity in ourselves. Right? Gone are the days, you know, the, the, the olden days when kids could take a large box and have endless adventures. Instead, I think we're often more like mindless drones who need to have that entertainment, that content kind of spoon-fed to us constantly. Now, with all that being said, if my view of the afterlife was constrained by my own creativity, then I would fully agree with Bertrand Russell that it would be a horror to live and endure an eternity of boredom, because I get bored all the time too. But my vision of heaven is not spearheaded by my own efforts, but is namely in the creativeness of my Creator. Creator. I see heaven as a dynamic and lovely place, mostly because I know of the dynamic and lovely God whom I serve. Now, in a little bit, I'm going to get to some examples, hopefully some concreteness, of what I think we'll do in heaven. But I think it's important for us to see, we often define our lives in the here and now as what we do. But heaven, I don't think, is primarily a place of doing. There will be things that we do, but it's not primarily a place of doing. Instead, it is a place of being. We see this from a few verses that I read in the passage. Right? It defines the relationship, our identities, and the relationship between God and his people. First and foremost, the life everlasting is about being with God himself. Right? The essence of heaven is about being with, with Jesus Christ. And so I believe that our delight and anticipation of the idea of the afterlife, looking forward to the afterlife, is directly proportional to our delight in Jesus Christ. If the idea of spending lots and lots of time with Jesus sounds boring, then I will acknowledge that heaven will probably feel like a snooze fest for you. But I think that heaven will be far from boring. I mean, have you ever had the experience of being, spending time with a really good friend? You get together, you reminisce about the the good old days, or maybe you enjoy your conversations over a, a lavish, rich meal. In those conversations, you're always like checking your watch, see what time it is. No, you're just enjoying the ride. And time seems to go before you. And before you know it, it's, it's time to leave. I think that's what things will be like in heaven as we connect with old friends in the afterlife or we connect with Jesus himself. Hey, we're not, we don't have bills to pay. We don't have schedules to keep. We don't have laundry to clean. None of those other interests are going to steal our time or attention, but the entirety of our attention will be present in those relationships. I think heaven will be a place of joy in friendship. But I think heaven will also be joyful in story. I'm a big reader. Uh, My my favorite genre is is fantasy, stories that are set in these fantastic worlds with quests for the protagonist to accomplish or friendships to develop, conflict to overcome. There have been times where I've been reading a really good book and I've become so immersed in the character development that I just didn't want the story to end. I just wanted it to keep going. I have a number of friends who feel very similarly about, about television, right? You binge watch a show like Stranger Things, and at the end of the season, you're just like, I want more. Like, I want to know what happens. I've become so attached to these fictional characters that I want to know what happens to Mike and Will and Eleven if, if you watch the show. right? You consume more and more and more if it was available. We serve a dynamic God. He's infinite. Right? Even after our bodily resurrection, we're still going to be finite. There still will be limits to us. There always will be new things for us to learn about God, new angles to understand about him, new conversations to have with him or about him. I mean, think about those couples who have been married fifty years. There's still elements of learning, new discoveries about one another. It's not an example of 50 years, but you know when I when I was a kid, my, my mom taught me some piano. It was challenging because having a parent as a music teacher is always challenging. And so I, I played for, I dabbled with it for a little bit, but in, in middle and high school, I played trumpet. And so I, I knew how to read music, specifically the treble clef, so I could sit down at a piano and I could fumble out a melody with my right hand. You know, Sarah and I got married and I knew that she had a, some background in piano and, you know, I would say I have a background in piano. And so I thought when she said that, she meant the same thing. And I remember it was several years. I don't know how long. Sarah could probably remember more than I do how long it was into our marriage. I'm just going to say 10 years for the sake of argument. But we were several years into our marriage when she sat down to play at the piano. And I kind of like gasped. I was like, you can use both hands on the piano. Like we had been married for a number of years, but this was still new information, new things to learn about each other. I think that's what it's going to be like with God, with one another in our relationships. We have eternity to to know each other and know ourselves even more intimately than we do now. Heaven is going to be a place of joy, not boredom place where we not only enjoy God himself, but we also enjoy all the good things the people of God create and cultivate, which brings me to my next point. What are we going to do in heaven? Now, I know this is probably going to be an unpopular statement, but I think pretty firmly that we will work in heaven. I didn't hear anything audible, but I can almost feel when I say things like that, because I say this regularly, the collective groan that people have about that. Like, man, I'm going to have to work. And a lot of times our negative attitudes towards work comes, towards, comes from our over-attachment and our workaholic culture. Right? We view work in our, in our society as a necessary evil to get us those things that we really want in life. Work is a means to an end. But right in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 2, God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what did he command them to do? Be fruitful and multiply, that's Genesis 1. But he commands them to work the land and to keep it. Part of their goal in paradise, right? It wasn't heaven the way that we understand heaven now, but it was a paradise. Even in paradise, there was work for them to do, to cultivate the land to make and create culture. It was in these tasks that they would honor and they would represent God as a steward of the land. In fact, the word that is used there of work has a connotation of worship with it. As they worked the land, it was an act of worship before their God. Now, our understanding of Genesis 1 and 2 is really important because what started in Genesis 1 and 2 ends, reaches its completion. What starts in a garden ends in a city in Revelation 21 and 22. And so I think there is a clear similarity. There is a link between the activities of Adam and Eve in the garden with what life will be like in eternity in the city. And so I firmly believe that we will work as an act of worship to our Creator, Here's just a brief example of some biblical support for that. This comes from Isaiah 60. It's a beautiful chapter that describes the future glory of Israel, right? This kind of age to come. The prophet describes the wealth of the nations coming to Israel at Jerusalem. Listen to an excerpt. Isaiah 60, verses 6 through 9. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance to my altar. And I will beautify my beautiful house. Who are these that fly like a cloud, like the doves on to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. The prophet describes the cultural goods of the nations around them Midian, Kedar, Tarshish, they're all coming into this kingdom of God. And the things that those cities, those places were known for their flocks of animals, their precious gems, their ships, were preserved in the age to come and enter the city to be celebrated and reflect the glory of God. For us, that would be like, and from Pittsburgh came the steel, right? Something that we're known for. So let's start seeing and thinking about what does this mean for us? This means that the elements of what we create in the present, in the here and now, elements of them are going to make it into eternity. I want us to understand that work matters. Work is not a necessary evil, but is one way that God invites us to participate in what he's doing in his kingdom, in the world around us. Now, just to be clear, when I say work, I don't mean what you do to get a paycheck. I mean, that, that is, that can be work, But we've got many callings in our life where we work and are not compensated. Whether it be a stay-at-home parent, a volunteer in the community, just making art for the fun of it, that can all be work in the view of Scripture. The point is the things that we do now have echoes into eternity, as we saw from Isaiah sixty. We've been called to steward this world now. And think about it almost like practice. It's like practicing our vocations, our callings for the age that is to come. Here's another way to think about it. Let's, let's say you travel a lot and you like to stay in a particular hotel chain, right? You show brand loyalty to them. So the Hampton Inn calls you because you're a regular, right? You're on there like, premier platinum points list. I don't know, whatever they call that. And they, they want your input on some design overhauls, right? They wanna redecorate and they say, hey, as a, as a loyal customer, we want your input on that. Now you'd probably gladly give your input to them, but you're probably not going to go in and get your hands dirty in the renovation. You're not gonna go and help them rip down walls and hang new portraits and paint everything. They're a hotel. You want to feel hospitality when you visit, but it's always a temporary stay. But let's say you want to do some renovations in your home. That's entirely different. That's the place where you live, the place where you spend the bulk of your life, a place where you have and make memories. There's a greater permanence for your house than a hotel could ever be. What Revelation 21 and 22 teach us is that the final resting place For our resurrected bodies is a fusion of heaven and earth. That means that the the things that we do on earth, here and now, matter. Earth is not just a thing that is going to be jettisoned. It's not a hotel that's a temporary stay. But it's our home. As as Belinda Carlisle famously sang, Oh baby, you know what that's worth. Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. She she was theological and didn't even know it. Right, as we consider what we'll do in eternity, we're going to work. We're going to worship. We're going to play. Can you imagine that? You're gonna actually have time. We will have Sabbath built into our rhythms that we actually will be able to step away from our work to play, to enjoy. We will think, we will communicate we're going to enjoy beauty, enjoy people, enjoy God. Now, th- Those are all things that we can participate in now. right? We can participate. We can develop friendships in the gospel that can last into eternity. We can work caring for this creation to steward it before the creator. Right? Heaven's not going to be a place where we just kind of lounge around playing harps on clouds, I don't know. I can confidently say that we will work, but that we will not work with the frenetic workaholic pace that we use today. But there will be countless activities for us to participate in, and an eternity to fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ. Now this leads me to my second and final point about eternity. Eternity is a really long time. Remember what I said earlier, that our delight in heaven, while it goes on forever and ever, will be directly proportional to the love that we feel for Jesus Christ. If the thought of spending forever with Jesus is not attractive to you, I want to just encourage you. I want to challenge you to take a real hard look at your faith in the present sometimes we treat jesus as a means to an end we love what jesus has done for us we acknowledge that he has rescued us from death cleansed us of our sins set us on this path towards heaven and that is great but i think our relationship with jesus has to go beyond just that the ancients had two ways to understand relationships they had what was called a relationship of utility and a relationship of character. Now a relationship of utility is exactly what it sounds like. You are in relationship with someone because they offer you something or vice versa. They can do something for you. Now, those are not bad relationships to have. It's not that one is good and one is bad. They can both be good. But I'm in a relationship with my mailman because he delivers my mail. I'm in a relationship with my child's teacher because I'm invested in my child's developmental growth. I'm probably not going to have my mailman over to dinner at my house. Probably not going to be inviting Austin's teacher on our family vacation. They're relationships of utility. But on the other hand, relationships of character is when we are in relationship with that person just because we delight in them. Right? There's no expectations. There's no "I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine," but a genuine enjoyment of one another's company. It's those relationships of character that you lose track of time. Right, you're not regularly checking the clock, like when is this going to be over, or like you know, how long do I have to stay before it's rude for me to leave? You know, those are the friendships that you leave feeling energized by. Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with the relationship of utility, but it is clear that there is a hierarchy between the two. It's evident that character is more precious and meaningful than utility. So in your life, would you identify Jesus as a relationship of utility or a relationship of character? Is your primary affection for him, is your primary connection to Jesus merely because of what he has done for you, or what he can do for you, or do you genuinely like spending time with Jesus? Be honest with yourself. There's no judgment from me. Like I said, it's not, it's not bad to have Jesus. I mean, there, there is a nature of utility in that because he has done so much for us but I'm encouraging us to break through that and see Jesus for who he is. Because this is important now, because if you are going to be spending eternity with Jesus, now is the time to fall in love with him. Now is the time to spend with him, to continue to develop that relationship. Right, when we affirm our belief in the life everlasting, we're setting ourselves up that we're in it for the long haul. like like the end of the Lord's Prayer, to to you be the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, or if you're Catholic, right, forever and ever, and maybe throwing an extra ever in there for good measure, a really long time, especially compared to anything we know, because in Scripture, our life on earth is described as a flash in the pan, a wisp of smoke, a flower that is here one day and gone the next. Use that time use that wisp of smoke, practicing and preparing for future. Both in our activities, like our work, being faithful in the things God has called us to, but also in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't miss the giver just because you've been focusing on the gift. May we go deeper in our love towards Jesus, both now as well as in preparation for the age to come. Let's pray. Lord, you love us and we love you. But help us prioritize that relationship that we might continue to fall more and more in love with you. That we would continue to see more and more the things, the ways, not just what you're doing, but who we are in your eyes. Lord, you are the master of having relationships of character because you don't need anything from anyone. Help us to reflect that character from you as well. As we continue on this path, this journey, towards the life everlasting. Amen.